The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Hello, hello, hello. Can you put this back on? I'm happy to. Okay, now I'm amplified. Yeah, I can hear the difference too. So the comment I was making um, is, and I think it's important enough to repeat, that I've been suggesting that it's important to imagine or try to understand what people who heard these stories were hearing. And we talked about what men might hear, what women might hear. But I didn't mention this, and I think this is really important, what this story could have meant to women hearing the story who have been told all their lives that women cannot attain enlightenment. And, um, you know, that can give girls and boys, but girls need it more, the inspiration that, yes, I can. Or, I don't believe you. Um, which is, you know, an important, very, very important voice to be heard in a male-dominated society. Uh, certainly, it's a voice I heard as a kid and as a teenager that you're just, you know, you just, you're a girl. You can't do those things. And... Well, I'll tell this story now, and then we'll go back into Mahaprajapati. My teacher, as you know from the way I've talked about her, I have a teacher who is a woman, Rinpoche, I think the only woman in the Tibetan contemporary world who uses that title. And um, she is the daughter of a very important family lineage in Tibetan Buddhism, and her father made her his dharma heir in his will. So she's the head She's the head of this lineage now. But there's also a branch in Tibet because, of course, it was in Tibet. There's a monastery in Tibet was a very fairly small, I think, community still there. And then the new monastery in India, which is she was born in India. And so that's where she is. But um, one of my colleagues went to Minderling in Tibet and talked to the monks at Minderling in Tibet about Khandra Rinpoche and Khandra Rinpoche being now the head of the Minderling lineage since her father died, and that's what he willed. And their attitude was, well, that's what some people think. Supplemented with the comment, it, she can't be. She's a woman. A woman can't do it. This is in 2010 or 11. It's not ancient history. Those attitudes really still prevail. So hearing stories about women becoming enlightened and being praised by the Buddha as his equal, that has to be a very powerful story for people to hear, especially if they've been told all their lives that women can't attain enlightenment. I know women of my age who went to China Taiwan probably in the 60s, 70s, went to monasteries, wanted to learn to meditate, and were told by the monks there, oh, women can't meditate. That's, you know, 50 years ago, within my lifetime. So we're going to finish up with the discussions of Mahapajapati.
uh, who is usually regarded as the most important woman in early Buddhism, certainly the best known to many Western practitioners, because she was the uh, first nun and the instigator of the nun's order, the founder of the nun's order, and also the person who actually raised Siddhartha Gautama, as you all know. Uh, that she, I mean, that she was Maya's sister, uh, took over raising the baby when the mother died at the age of seven, day, seven days. So she obviously is a really important person in the history of Buddhism. As founder of the nun's order, she is much beloved by women in many Buddhist countries. And it's a kind of a whole world that you don't know about or hear about unless somebody somehow takes you aside or takes you into it, which... Um, Happened a little bit for me when I was at the Sakyadita conference in Vietnam, which was, I think, in 2000, let's see, it must have been 2011. Anyway, it was very recent. And um, we were in a large Vietnamese temple, and you see the front of it with the Buddha, and, you know, that's what you see. And there's this huge hall, and the, the main shrine was the Buddha. Um, and then some women were, who took us, took some of us women, they said, come on. And they took us around behind the main altar, and the main altar was facing out. There was another altar. I shouldn't use, ever use the word altar for a Buddhist sanctuary. Altar is a place where you do sacrifices, so it should be shrine. The main shrine was facing this way. Behind it, completely you couldn't see it at all, was a, a second shrine that was facing the other direction, in which Prajapati was the major figure. And it was a women's room. It was a veritable women's room that, where the women came, and um, the women took us, took some of us Westerners there to show us. You know, this it isn't quite as stark as may, you may have been led to believe um, in in your accounts. Pardon? What area was that in Vietnam? That was in that was in um, Saigon. That's where the conference was held. Now, there's, in, in contemporary Vietnam, there's a lot of Buddhism. The government supports Buddhism well financially as long as the monks and nuns don't offer any uh, counter-opinions. <laughs> um, so it's sort of, you know, going along to get along or something like that. So, I mean, there's a lot of economic support of Buddhism, but it's pretty closely controlled with the government. So, of course, the best-known story about Mahaprajapati, and this may be another case of the selective, the selection that Western scholars like to focus on because it reinforces their male-dominant biases, is the story of the founding of the nun's order. Um, the story, of course, is that um, some years after the Buddha's enlightenment, after he had visited home and left, Mahaprajapati decided that the lifestyle that suited men so well was a lifestyle that would suit women too, that the renunciant lifestyle was something she wanted to lead. So she asked the Buddha to ordain the women that they could become nuns, and he said no, and um, he left. And um, the women of her court shaved their heads, cut their hair themselves, shaved their heads, put on the robes, and walked on foot to where the Buddha was. And it's, you know, that said they were court ladies. They weren't used to this kind of exercise at all. 
and they were not in very good shape when they finally got to Vaisali, which is where the Buddha was residing at the time. And they asked again to be ordained, having put forth a very good demonstration that they were capable and sincere and uh, wanted it and could follow, could endure the hardship. And again, he said no. And the third time, still said no, whereupon Ananda uh, started to intervene for the women. And this is one of the reasons in some sources why Ananda is disliked by some monks. Now, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is the great translator of Polytext, says this story cannot possibly be correct because at this time in his life, Ananda would have been about 15. <laughs> that Ananda was chosen to be the Buddha's attendant because he was younger than the Buddha and therefore as a young man could take care of a more elderly person who was getting to be a bit frail. And that Ananda was far too young to have a voice that the Buddha would have even listened to at this time. So all the evidence that this story is not historically accurate builds up and adds up. But in any case, the story is that Ananda then went to the Buddha and said, can women become enlightened? And the Buddha said, of course. And then Ananda said, well, since women can become enlightened, wouldn't the lifestyle that's so helpful for men on the path also be helpful for women on the path? Good argument, right? If women can become enlightened, why not allow them the lifestyle that promotes enlightenment? So at that point, the Buddha had to give up, and he agreed that women could be ordained, but... There's a you know, big but that they had to observe eight rules for nuns only, the effect of which is to subordinate even the most senior nun to the most junior monk, period. So it's a completely male-dominated set of rules. In addition to that, he said, if women hadn't become ordained, the religion would have lasted a thousand years, but since they did become ordained, it's only going to last 500 years. So it's like, you know, not, not, not such a great story. <laughs> now what about this story? Um, there's a lot of evidence that it, is, it just doesn't fit with the rest of the Pali canon, that it has to have been something that came into the story as, uh, you know, religions tend to... Um, often become somewhat more male-dominated in later uh, instances than they are at the beginning, that frontier situations, new situations, often favor women in ways that more established situations don't. So there's so much evidence that this story just isn't, um, isn't historical. It isn't, it's not, not from the Buddha at all. Textually, I think the strongest evidence is what I've already said, that throughout the Pali Suttas, the Buddha, when we talk about the Sangha, we always talk about the fourfold Sangha, monks, nuns, lay men, lay women. And that's just taken for granted, that there are four communities in the full Sangha. And uh, to have a complete full Sangha, you have to have the nuns there. It's not a complete Sangha if you only have monks, lay men, and lay women. And it's very interesting in some of the, the Tibetan discussions of uh, being born in a fortunate place in a fortunate time, 
having a fortunate rebirth, in other words, includes being born in a place where the Dharma is taught fully. And being born in a border region where the Dharma is not fully taught isn't as fortunate. One of the places that is actually a border region is a place where there are no nuns because the Dharma is not being fully taught if the fourfold community isn't there. Um, and so that's a, one argument that's used for why we have to uh, be, have bhikshuni ordination in the Tibetan Sangha, which we don't have. There are three, as I said, there are three different vinayas in observation in the Buddhist world. Only the Dharmagupta vinaya, which is the Chinese vinaya, um, has current procedures for ordaining nuns to full or nun status. Um, the Theravada Vinaya and the Tibetan Vinaya don't include those provisions. Most of the women who are fully ordained in the Tibetan tradition have gotten their ordination in the Dharmagupta tradition. The Theravada nuns who are fully ordained have made various ways, there have been you know, various ways of doing it, none of which are fully accepted, though nuns are beginning to be reasonably well accepted. I don't mean Mechi, I don't mean people who are living a renunciate lifestyle without ordination. I mean fully ordained nuns. That's starting to be, you know, at least much better accepted in much of the Theravada world, though it's still hard, especially in Asia. I mean, in Thailand, it's still illegal for a monk to ordain or participate in nuns ordination. You can be thrown into prison for helping ordain nuns if you're in Thailand. So many of the nuns ordinations are held in secret um, because, because it's illegal, you know? Sort of like interracial marriage was 50 years ago in this country. So, um, the story doesn't seem to be very accurate, but it has taken a deep hold on much Buddhist imagination or much Buddhist self-understanding. Many people, until very recently, have accepted it at face value. And even as we're going to see in a few minutes in Gotami's Apadana, or the story of her life, the words are put into her mouth to say, that, you know, I was the one who got you to ordain nuns, and if that was a mistake, please forgive me. So even, even a couple of centuries, three centuries, or so, four or five centuries at the most, after the Buddha's death, people took it at face value that this story was canonical and was part of the Buddha's life. It took a deep hold in Buddhism. I've heard people today say, we don't have to worry about nuns' ordination. The Buddha never wanted them ordained anyway relying on this story. So since the Buddha didn't want them to be ordained anyway, why do we have to bother about it? And, you know, the standard legalist line that many people say is, we can't figure it out. It has to wait till Buddha Maitreya comes. And when Buddha Maitreya comes, he will reinstitute the fourfold sangha and then nuns can be... So just wait. You know, how long... Yeah, something that's so far in the future that it defies imagination to even come up with the numbers. But just wait. It'll it'll be it'll be okay in the long run. <laughs> and this is one of the things, but if you had less ego you wouldn't care about. 
And many of the Asian women say, oh, we want ordination. We're not feminists. We want ordination so that we can practice Buddhism fully. But we're not feminists. Don't get that wrong. We're not feminists. <laughs> I've, you know, I haven't heard that line personally, but it's been repeated many times. Um, I'm trying to think of something I wanted to mention, and that slipped my mind momentarily, which is why I'm hesitating here for a couple of seconds. Well, it's lost for now. Um, in any case, let's take the story at face value. Say it is what the Buddha actually, during you know five years or seven years after his enlightenment, which I can't remember exactly how many years after his enlightenment, but it was soon after his enlightenment that Mahapajrapati came forward and asked for ordination. Suppose the Buddha did refuse three times and had to be convinced by Ananda and suppose he actually even did these eight special rules and all of that, there's an element that's being missed, that everybody has missed. And that is that even according to that story, the Buddha changed his mind about this issue. First he said no. When presented with a good argument, he finally said yes. Now isn't that a great role model? for all those male authorities in the Buddhist monastic world who are saying, we can't figure it out. Oh, I know what I wanted to say. I always say, if it was men's monastic ordination that was at stake, they'd figure it out in about, it would take a day, maybe. You know, they'd figure it out. They wouldn't say, well, we have to wait for Buddha Maitreya. That's what I wanted to say. But even if you take this story and take it quite literally, there's a clause in there that, they, that has just been totally overlooked for, for a long time by many, many people. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, who gets to interpret texts makes a lot of difference. There's so much politics that goes into a text getting written, a text being preserved, a text being translated, a text being interpreted. And at every step of the way, there's a lot of politics. It's all interdependently arisen. It isn't texts don't you know, just drop out of the sky fully formed. They're the result of interdependent arising and people's interests and people's needs and people's imaginations. And I think this is a perfect example of how much is at stake in terms of who gets to interpret texts whose voices get heard, which is why I find it you know, remarkable that we have these centuries-old texts in which there's so much more of women's voices than earlier Western scholarship on Buddhism ever led us to um, believe. Now, there's another story, um, another part, or no, it's another story, that at some point in her life, Mahapajapati is supposed to have gone to, to the Buddha and asked that he, uh, instead of having all nuns junior to all monks in the hierarchy, that he recognized seniority simply by length of ordination time. Not by whether you were a man or a woman, but just those who have been ordained. Because within the nuns sangha, within the monks sangha, seniority is strictly on how long you've been ordained. It has nothing to do with you know, your, how good you are. It's just how long you've been ordained. And the Buddha is supposed to have replied that even in less well-run orders, women did not um, 
did not have seniority over men. So how could that happen in his order, that women would be senior to men? And um, here, I a, think this is quite a funny story about my teacher, Kandu Rinpoche, who is now the head of a monastery with four or 500 monks in it. And uh, I, we, I don't talk very much with her about it because it's like, you know, that's her world and I'm not part of that part of her world. But one day I, I, we were talking a lot and I said, you know, sometimes I think about what in the world must it be like for you to try to lead four or 500 monks knowing how very male-dominated Tibetan Buddhism is. And she started laughing and she said, well, I tell them I'm the result of your karma. (laughs) In other words, if you had been better practitioners in your past lives, you wouldn't have to be. (laughs) So then last fall, when I was saying goodbye to her for the season, we had been talking about male dominance, and she sighed and said, yeah, I have to go back to my male-dominated situation pretty soon now. And I said, well, I never ask you about mindrilling and just left the sentence trail out because, one, it's impolite to ask. And two, she would tell me if she wanted me to know. And she said, well, she said, it's getting better. It's getting better. The younger ones are better, but there are still these stubborn old Goloks who insist that birth is more important than ability. (laughs) So I, uh, you know, it's a very interesting situation. So that's the, set, the, the story that's in the standard literature. It's in both the Vinaya and the Sutta literature, that story about Mahaprajapati. But then in the fifth Nikaya, in her Avadana, uh, well, first in the, in the Terigata and then in the Avadana, there are more stories. Uh, the Terigata and the Terigata, I think most of you know this literature, the poems of the enlightened monks and the enlightened nuns and... Uh, the story of the enlightened nuns has become very popular in the last 30 years. So when I went to the first edition of the Robinson and Johnson textbook on Buddhism, which is the standard history of Buddhism, the first edition of it, there was like one half a sentence on the Terigata, and that was the only word about women at all in the entire book. And now, of course, it's different. But... Um, the Terigata has been discovered and has become really important to a lot of uh, a lot of people. The Terigata consists of the poems of the nuns, but then at some point, uh, someone some point along the way, someone wrote prologues to each of the poems. It's not from the first person account, but someone wrote prologues to each of the poems, which flesh out the life story of the nun who wrote the poem. That was one stage of the story, and then at an even later stage, a full apadana was uh, composed. And Gotami's apadana is the only one, at least I think it's the only one that's been translated into English. Uh, It's not long. This is the text here, uh, and it's in a book called Buddhism in Practice. It's a chapter in a book called Buddhism in Practice, um, written by Jonathan Walters. Yeah, Jonathan Walters. Uh, who translated her Apadana. That was a big, really big advance uh, in scholarship because there's stuff in that Apadana that, like, when I first read it, was, wow, 
this is really nifty. This is really big. But anyway, in the uh, pre-story of Mahaprajapati in the Terigata, um, what happens is that the stories of the monks and nuns always parallel the story of the Buddha. So how did her story start? We could say once upon a time, long ago, uh, when Padumutara Padumutara was the Buddha. So in in the era, world eon of a different Buddha, a previous Buddha, uh, she was born in a certain place, in a certain family, um, and she heard that Buddha teaching, and then she saw him assigning his aunt to be the head of the nun sangha. And she said, for some day, I'm going to be that woman in the dispensation of another Buddha. So she made her resolve at that point to become that woman who would be the head of the nun's order in a new age when a new Buddha was teaching the newly discovered Dharma again. And again, again I marvel, how could somebody carry that memory as dominant through millions of lifetimes? And that would still be the leading, the leading thought in her mind. But she resolved to win that same honor for herself. And um, she was... She was uh, projected at that point that she would, in fact, be able to um, be reborn as that woman. Um, Padumutara, the Buddha under whom she made the vow, was the eighth of 25 Buddhas, and Gautama was the 25th. So that was a long time ago. And he lived 100,000 eons ago, according to these huge numbers that we start getting. And, you know, each eon is incalculably long. So <laughs> and finally, she was reborn as Mahaprajapati. And in her own apadana, uh, or not her own apadana, her own verse, which I will read part of to you, she says, Oh, but tis long I've wandered down all time, living as mother, father, brother, son, and as grandparent in the ages past, not knowing how and what things really are and never finding what I needed. But now mine eyes have seen the exalted one, and now I know this living, this living frame is the last, and shattered is the unending round of births. No more prajapati shall come to be. Now, why the reason I read this passage to you is because she says in her own poem that she has been father, mother, brother, son. So she is saying she's been reborn in both sexes throughout this long period of time, which contradicts what many scholars say about the Apadana worldview, which is that you always stay the same sex. Now, the verse is probably earlier than the Apadana, so things could have changed uh, in the meantime. And it's often said that because women could become arhats in early Buddhism, sex change wasn't necessary. You didn't have to have the motif of sex change. If you believe that women cannot become enlightened, which became a very strong belief at a certain point in Buddhism, then you have to also have sex change. Because what kind of a sensible religion would say 
no female can become enlightened and females are always reborn as females. If you said that, you would be condemning half of your species to perpetual ignorance and samsara. So that wouldn't work. Uh, to me, knowing about you know Buddhism's lack of essentialism, it doesn't make any sense to view sex as so unalterable that if there is such a thing as rebirth, it doesn't make any sense to think that sex is so essential that you cannot change your sex from body to body, that life, that that doesn't change. So I have my questions. I have real questions about whether Buddhists would ever have believed that you are always reborn as the same sex, assuming there is such a thing as rebirth, which, you know, is always talked about as a fact in much Buddhist literature. So uh, we've talked about her Terigata verse. Now we're going to talk about the Apadana story. Um, and the Apadana focuses some on her previous life and on events earlier in this life. But the main focus of the story is the day of her death. That's the whole story is about the day of her death. Uh, and at this point uh, in the story, she is, the Buddha is... 78, and she claims to be 120. Now, whether she was actually 42 years older than the Buddha or not, who knows? But the story puts it that she's 120. And like Yasodhara, she also says, she knows the Buddha is going to die in two years, and she says, I should die before the Buddha does, because if they lose both of us at the same time, it will be too much. It will just be too much for people to take, so I will die first. And um, she, she and her 500 nuns go to the Buddha to inform them of their decision and ask his permission to do so. Now, this story, as his mother, there's none of the, uh, none of the material we get in the story of Yasodhara, which is about relationships between a husband and wife, where there's a lot of ambiguity and abuse. This is a story about a mother and a son, and there's a lot more respect and no sense whatsoever that um, he ever, you know, abused his mother or was cruel to his mother or did anything, you know, nasty to his mother. That, so that shows you something, too, about male-female relationships, that Relationships between husbands and wives were pretty fraught with trouble, but not between mothers and sons. And that's actually part of how a patriarchal system works, that once you get to be a mother, you have a lot of power and a lot of veneration, but you cannot expect much respect from men of your own generation. I've had also had Asian men tell me, but you don't understand, we revere our mothers there's no gender problem in Buddhism. We revere our mothers. We really revere our mothers. Well, what does that do for women who aren't mothers? Not much. <laughs> so well, they have a dialogue. She's talking to the Buddha about this is she's, you know talking, telling him she's going to die. And one of the things she says in this story is that Buddhist girls, as young as seven attain liberation. Girls, Buddhist girls, as young as seven, 
attain liberation or attain the state of liberation that sages strive for. And uh, she says many other things, statements that refute popular ideas about women's spiritual ineptitude. She also teaches the Buddhist, Buddhist lay women come to her and beg her not to, not to die yet. And she teaches them about impermanence and encourages them to be more like her. But before she dies, or before the Buddha says it's okay for you to go into parinirvana, the Buddha asks her to perform numerous miracles to refute those who think women can't attain the highest stages. So it's the same motif, but we have, I'll, I'll find the verse. Verse 79, these verses aren't numbered. So what you have here, in any case, the view is already established that women can't attain enlightenment, right? And words are put into the Buddha's mouth to contradict that. Words are put into the... This is not the historical Buddha speaking. This is a text that's written far later. But somebody wanted to represent the historical Buddha as saying... You need to perform miracles to refute people who say that women cannot attain the highest states. Women can attain the highest states and prove it to people by performing miracles. So, um, again, she puts on quite a show. Uh, as I said earlier, it would, you'd have to be very, very good at special effects to duplicate what she's able to duplicate. And I'm going to take a couple of seconds here to find the right passages. Here's the Buddha uh, speaking. This is, these are the words that are put into his mouth. Yet still there are fools who doubt that women too can grasp the truth. Very strong. There are fools who think that women can't grasp the truth. Gotami show miracles that they might give up their false views. Very strong statement. So you see what I mean when I say gender has always been contested in Buddhism. There have always been people who said this male dominance is not right, it's not dharma, we have to do something about it. Um, okay, now we'll read some of the special effects. <laughs> Gotami bowed to the Lord, then leaped into the sky. Permitted by the Buddha, she displayed her special powers. She was alone, then she was cloned, cloned and then alone. She would appear, then disappear. She walked through walls and through the sky. She went about unstuck on earth and also sank down into it. She walked on water as on land without breaking the surface. Cross-legged, she flew like a bird across the surface of the sky. With her body controlled the space right up to God's own home. She made the earth a canopy. Mount Meru was its handle. And twirling her new parasol, she walked around the sky. 
It was as though six suns arose. She made the world fume as though it was the end of time. She garlanded the earth in flames. She held Mounts Meru, Mandara, Dandara, and Great Muchalind, all of them in a single fist, like tiny mustard seeds. She concealed with fingers tipped the makers of both day and night as if her necklace had as gems a thousand suns and moon. From her tiny palms, she had held the waters in the four great seas. She rained forth a torrential rain like an apocalyptic cloud, etc. <laughs> and she goes into some of her past lives. I think we can skip that. So um, um, this will be interesting to those of you who know the Mahaparinibbana Sutra. So we'll read this after she's done with her miracle shows, and. Um, Further conversation with the Buddha. I'll read this. This is apparently a chorus by all the nuns. And it's these there's some speculation that this material may have been performed at the stupas, that it actually could have been like like a play that people uh, dramatized because there are definitely parts in this narrative. The nuns say, Hey, hero, it was Gotami who pitied all of us. Performed by your good karma, we slew the imperfections. Defilements gone, we've abolished existence, and now we are like elephant cows who, breaking every single fetter, dwell without constraint. Being in the Buddha's midst was pure profit for us. We attained the three special knowledges. The Buddha's teaching is achieved. The four analytical knowledges, the eight deliverances, the six higher knowledges experienced, the Buddha's teaching is achieved. We've mastered all the miracles and the divine ear faculty. Great sage, we've mastered of the knowledge. We're masters of the knowledge of what is stored in others' hearts. We know all our former lives. Divine eye now is purified. With every perfection gone, we won't be born again. We understand meanings and doctrinal things, etymology, and how to preach. Great hero, it was your presence that our knowledge was, it was in your presence that our knowledge was produced. O guide, you are surrounded by us with loving hearts. Great sage, now you give us your consent to go and reach nirvana. Right now we're going out. And so um, they go back to the nunnery. On the way, the lay women come again and ask her, please not to go into nirvana. Please stay with us. One of the things that I think is really interesting about this literature 
is that as Buddhism went through its, through its history, people became less and less comfortable with the idea that the Buddha died. Less and less comfortable. And in Mahayana Sutras, the Buddha is immortal. He never dies. In the, it's, it's just one of those, I think, unfortunate things in the history of Buddhism that people really lost awareness of the humanity of the Buddha. So this is the description of uh, Mahaprajapati's Parinirvana. Then having sent them all away, uh, she entered the first altered state, the second yes, and then the third, and then she reached the fourth of them. You've studied the... But in order, moving higher still, the plane of space infinity, the plane in which perception's gone, and then where nothingness is seen. Gotami reversed the order, backward reaching all these states, the last one first, the first one last, and then back to the fourth. You might wonder why that's important or why I'm reading that passage to you, because it sounds pretty esoteric to most contemporary Buddhists. But those are the eight stages of jnana, which is exactly the description of how the Buddha himself died. So her story completely parallels that of the Buddhas in every way. She made an aspiration in a former lifetime to achieve an exalted status, and she did it, and she died, in a, or went into nirvana in exactly the same way, going through the stages of, of jnana in exactly the same way. And then it says, and, they, and going out at the fourth stage, is really important. The fourth stage, the first four jananas are in the form realm, and the last four are obviously in the formless realm. And there's real question about whether whether experience in the formless realm uh, is well. It's too seducing. It's too it's too pleasant. So that's not usually a place to be. And it's also said the Buddha's first two teachers taught him how to get to the formless realm trances, but he, that, that's, not a, that's a mind-created state that's not trustworthy. Whereas the first four jnanas are in the form realm, so what, you, what we do with practice is get out of the desire realm where we're completely pushed and pulled by our desires. And if it's practice, we move into the form realm where we're not so driven by, by our senses, but the perceptions are still active. And it ends, the fourth, the, the description of the fourth jnana is equanimity and single-pointedness, that that's what you're experiencing. And that's the state that is a state of realization, not the state of being in some esoteric formless realm. So then it goes on to say, rising up, she went out, like a fuelless lamp's flame. And there were so many contemplations in early Buddhism where watching a flame of a lamp die out was what tripped people's minds to that, oh, that's what I'm like too. The fuel will go out. And I think maybe some of you know, I can't say, I'd say it in the Sanskrit way, Tanisiro's, Tanisaro Bhikkhu's wonderful book, The Mind Like Fire Unbound, um, which the energy, you know, fuel had a lot of karmic energy bound up in it, and when you burn the fuel, that energy is all released. And so the fire is unbound. 
And his translation for nirvana is unbinding, which I think is absolutely the perfect translation. In the Ati tradition in Tibetan Buddhism, we talk a lot about the, the, what we need to attain is a state of relaxation. That samsara is being completely uptight and tied up in knots and that release is not flopping, that's not relaxing, but complete relaxation of contentment with things as they are and not needing anything to be different. That, that, um, so this is an allusion to a very common motif in Buddhism. So she um, goes out and all 500 of her nuns do as well. And... Um, they have to they have to have a funeral for them, of course. And Onanda announces to the other monks that they have died, or they they died. She's died. He says, "Thus, thus, Gotami, who carefully reared up the sage's body, is gone to peace." no longer seen, just like the stars at sunrise. Her destination now is reached. Her name alone remains. Even the Buddha who has five eyes cannot see where she went. Each who has faith in the well-gone one and each who is the sage's pupil sought to come that Buddha's son to honor the Buddha's mother. And so they have the funeral for Mahaprajapati and all the nuns. And then at the end of it, the narrator of the whole thing says, yeah, this is the narrator speaking. So you can see it must have been a drama. He says, the Buddha's great nirvana, good, but not as good as this one. Gotama's great going out was positively stellar. <laughs> and then the Buddha has the last words in the narrative or the drama. And this is what the Buddha says. Even the trunk of a huge timber tree, however massive it may be, will break to bits eventually. Thus Gotami, who was a nun, is now gone out completely. It is so marvelous a thing. My mother, who has reached nirvana, leaving only bits of bone, had neither grief nor, sorrow, grief nor tears. She crossed this ocean of existence, grieving not for others left. And now she is cool. She's well gone out. Her torment now is done. Know this, O monks. She was most wise, with wisdom vast and wide. She was a nun of great renown, a master of great powers. She cultivated the divine ear and knew what others thought. Those who are emancipated cross the god of lusts, delu deluge. Those with solid happiness do not get born again. 
Therefore, be lamps for yourselves. Go gaze in mindfulness. With wisdom, seven parts attained. You should all end your woe. And that's how Gotami's story ends. Now, I want to, uh, since I've talked a little bit about my teacher, I want to add, there's a new chapter to this story since the last time I gave uh, this workshop. And that is that this is a family lineage that I, where I work with. So Jetson Kondo uh, Rinpoche is the daughter of the previous lineage holder. It's a family lineage, so it needs to come down through a family. She's a nun, so obviously she's not going to have kids. Her sister, however, is married, uh, got married very recently, married to a Westerner, and um, she had a baby about 13 months ago, baby girl. And what did they name her? Gotami. Now, Jonathan Walters, who has done so much work on this story, says the significance of the name Gotami is that it's the feminine equivalent of Gotama. And she's always called Gotami in this text, which he says means she's, she's actually a female Buddha. She's equivalent to the Buddha in every way, except that she didn't discover the four truths without a teacher, which only a Buddha can do. But Gotama, Gotami, they're, they're completely on an e- even plane once they're both enlightened. And uh, Gotami is not a name that people, the Tibetan, I don't know of any other Tibetan named Gotami. It's not a name Tibetans give their kids. So when I heard about the birth, I, I, wrote, to, I wrote to both of them, of course, and I said, well, you know, that's, that's, a pretty, that's pretty amazing, the name you've given her, and that's really wonderful. And I don't know what I said, but you know, I said basically, I get it. <laughs> and uh, when I saw them then this summer for the first time, they they said they apologized for not writing back and said, but we knew you'd get it. <laughs> so some of us who are deep into the Tibetan Buddhist world and the family lineages have made a wish, and that is of these families that have so much power and so much influence. For a few generations, may they only have daughters. <laughs> There would be no better cure to enduring male dominance in that world. So we'll see. We'll see what happens in the next generation. But uh, Jetson Gotami was at Lotus Garden last fall during the annual retreat, being handed up to the throne to sit in her aunt's lap while teachings are going on. And... um, you know, just there for, for everything. So she's going to be raised the way her mother and her aunt were, which is in the middle of Dharma, in the middle of a monastery, which is her lineage monastery. And who knows what's going to happen in the next few generations. So we have a few minutes left. I've got more comments I could make, but let's uh, leave the last few minutes for some reflection and discussion and commentary. Um, Obviously, what I'm trying to show you is that Buddhist literature about gender is far richer than most of us know, and also far more pro-women than it is often given credit for being. There's a lot more there than um, we often hear. Microphone. I have to recharge here. 
so you can see when, when this material, on, the material on Gotami's story was not known to me when I wrote Buddhism After Patriarchy. Um, and when and the author was very kind to send, this, send it to me. And it's, it's amazing new layer of all of that, all of that material. Because there's nothing really ambiguous about Gotami's story. Um, she, you know, she doesn't have this ambiguous relationship with the Buddha that Yasodhara, as a wife, has. Um, yes, is this? I don't think it's working. Hello, hello, can you hear me? Oh, okay. Here there we go. We go. <laughs> I just was wondering. You said that um, the famous story about Ananda talking the Buddha into accepting nuns. Mm-hmm. Um, assuming that that isn't what probably happened, I was just wondering if you had a, an alternative version of that story to offer us. Or I what? suspect that uh, because Jains were already let, uh, ordaining women as nuns, I suspect that it just happened as a matter of course. And that later on, when there was more hostility to women... Um, then people, you know, said, why in the world did the Buddha ever let that happen anyway? And that's where the story comes from. Uh, so I would sus- that's what I would suspect. Like, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that story isn't accurate. And even if it is, it contains a tremendous inaccuracy in the prophecy. That religion has lasted well more than a thousand years, let alone 500. So therefore, since that whole part of the thing is way off, why do we have to take the rest of it seriously? Now, people sometimes say, oh, you're just picking and choosing the parts you like the way you like it. But that's the way it always is. Texts, as I said, do not drop down from heaven bound between two covers. They are the, process, they are the result of a process of cultural creation that is always ongoing and always changing. So um, people had their reasons for inserting, for coming up with the text. I have my reasons for saying it's bunk. And, you know, it's certainly, I think my reasons for saying it's bunk are just as valid as the reasons people had for putting it there in the first place. I've heard Stephen Batchelor make that same (laughs) argument. (laughs) I pass it down the line. Yeah, give it, you haven't spoken anyway. Okay, thank you. Could you say something about the situation regarding full ordination of women today in East and West? Um, it's the same in East and West, in that in the Dharmagupta lineages, which are practiced in China, Korea, and some of Vietnam, women have always had full ordination. Uh, it was never at issue. Uh, in the Theravada world, there was obviously full ordination in Sri Lanka until about 1100 or so AD. And then for whatever reasons, the full ordination uh, died out, and it was never brought back, and it never was transmitted to Thailand, and I don't know for sure about Burma and uh, Cambodia. I don't think so. Um, in those countries today... Full ordination is being brought back very slowly, and it's, some, it's quite controversial. But there are a lot of both men and women who very much are in favor of it. It's not just women who favor it. Uh, in the Tibetan world, uh, following the, the Mula Sarvastivadin Vinaya, 
probably full ordination never went to Tibet. If it did go to Tibet, it was uh, it was uh, squelched or exterminated in that period between the two disseminations to to, to Tibet. And uh, there, but there is a novice ordination in Tibetan Buddhism. So when you see Tibetan nuns, unless they've gone to somewhere in in Hong Kong or something like that to get full ordination. If you see Tibetan nuns, they're novice nuns, but the robes are fully monastic colors. Whereas in Theravada Buddhism, the women who were renunciants had to wear white, usually white. Because, you know, in Thailand, you could get yourself killed if you were a woman trying to wear monastic colors at one point in time. There was great opposition to it. Um... Bringing full ordination into Tibetan Buddhism is, um, <laughs> we've got to wait for some of the old guys to die off before it's going to happen. The Dalai Lama is 100% in favor of it. He says he's sure that, that if the Buddha were alive today, that's what he would do. But he says he doesn't have the authority to impose this change on all the lineages of Tibetan Buddhism. To which I say, well, I don't, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> but his geishas, his senior monks, are adamantly opposed to it. And he does not want to split his lineage over the ordination, which is very much the position Christians often take on women's ordination as well. It's not worth splitting the religion over this trivial an issue. Now, the Dalai Lama has already split the Gelug order over a different issue. So much as I adore the Dalai Lama, I do think he's a little too timid on this particular issue. And that's, yes, well, in Western, Western women, um, go somewhere. Uh, there have been full ordinations now performed in the West, I think L.A. Uh, Western women go somewhere to get the ordination, and it's the same for Western or Eastern women who want ordination. I wonder if you could comment a little bit on the Western Buddhism that is starting to emerge, and particularly um, what emerged from the Theravadan tradition, so what we might call the Western insight tradition that's being taught, say, at Spirit Rock or IMS. Mm -hmm. There's a much more egalitarian view of women being presented, and my impression is that that happens by selectively choosing which texts are talked about. We don't hear about a lot of the things... So I'm, I'm curious if you think it's possible to just kind of excise that and start over with a more Western perspective, as seems to be going on. You know, where's that going to go? How is that working out? Well, every, you know, every every tradition continues to work out its own its own version of things. I feel that we have to take seriously the historical origins and the historical texts. And taking them seriously doesn't mean following them blindly. But I think that we have to know what the past was, that we shouldn't ignore it. Um, that it's important to know how patriarchal Buddhism has been uh, so that we have more appreciation for what we're doing in the West. Um, but I think it's also important that we know all the precedents in the, in the traditional literature that are um, that contest gender. I mean, this is only a tiny, tiny part of what I've said today. Is only a tiny, tiny part. 
You could write a very large book on all the texts in Buddhist literature that contest the male-dominant view of things. And I think it's important that we realize we're not reinventing the wheel 100%. We have precedence on our side as well. I think that's really important, that we are, we are in the lineage. You know, as I said in my Sakyadita paper in India last year, from the time that Mahabharaj Prajapati wouldn't take no for an answer, Buddhist women and men have continued to contest male dominance, and that's really the lineage I want to stand in and claim. I don't really want to just excise and start over. I don't think that's... Um, I just don't think that's a wise thing to do. We have a lot of lineage that we can rely on, starting with Mahaprajapati, and as she's reconstructed Rasodara from the very beginning. Thank you. It does sound valuable. It's not only unwise, it's unnecessary to yeah. uh, claim that we're starting over. And also it doesn't work. You know, Thomas Jefferson edited the New Testament and what do we have? We have fundamentalist Christianity that takes every letter of the New Testament seriously and uses it to restrict a lot of us. So it doesn't work. It just isn't a wise course historically. So this is a related question. Um, I'm wondering how we as Western Buddhists can help to transform this tradition with integrity, given what some of the sub-dialogues in this day have been about both religious diversity and the um, difference between those people who do study the texts and then the more popular understandings of Buddhism. So how can we start to translate some of these issues with integrity? Well, I think that those of us who do study the texts and do study Buddhist history need to be able to speak in a way that's not so jargon-filled that people can't understand what we're saying. I think that's part of it, is to learn how to speak plainly. Um, and, you know, as you know now, I'm writing a lot for Tricycle, and my new book is going to be short and accessible, and with the time I have left, that's what I want to do, is, is, you know, I spent my whole life studying Buddhism, and now I hope that before I die, I can write some more stuff that's really accessible. And much more, Buddhism After Patriarchy is a great book, but it's not all that accessible to people who don't know a lot about Buddhism or don't want to read a long book. So that's what I think we have to do. We have to become well-educated, really well-educated in Buddhism, very, very deeply grounded in practice. And I think if we do those two things and we care enough, we'll be able to speak properly. I don't worry about that. Beautiful. Thank you. Part of what I hear when you're saying that is to learn how to tell these stories in a voice that everyone can understand. Well, telling the story, you know, it's it's great to teach propositionally. It's also great to teach through story. And, you know, there's a tradition in Judaism, the Midrashic tradition, which is in many ways what's echoing in my mind all the time as I retell these stories in a contemporary voice with contemporary slang. That's what makes a tradition living, when you can retell it in a contemporary voice, including contemporary slang. That means you're not so in awe of the tradition that it's foreign. It's 5 o'clock. 
Do you have a dedication of merit or something to end with? I'd like to do a dedication of merit, but I don't... By this merit, having attained omniscience and defeated the enemy of wrongdoing, may I free all beings from the ocean of existence with its tumultuous waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. Amen.